<laughs> well, glad that you're here uh, tonight. Welcome uh, to Element City Church. Thanks for worshiping with us. And maybe you're new and kind of maybe getting back into the routine of, of, of finding a church or coming to church for the very first time. Maybe you got invited. Uh, someone said, hey, we're going to go to dinner afterwards, and I hope they take you to a really good place. Uh, but I'm really glad and honored to have you here. If you are new, we'd love to connect with you. And tonight, actually, you picked a great night to be here. We're starting a brand new series through the Gospel of Luke called Jesus And. And it's looking at some realities, some tensions, some circumstances that Jesus had to navigate that I think you and I have to navigate a little bit and looking at how Jesus did that and how maybe aligning our lives with him might help us do it better. And so I'm excited that you're here. Tonight, we're going to look at this idea of our foundational or kind of the foundation of our faith and our very identity. And we're going to get there in a little bit. Now, how many of you, um, let me just start. How many of you own a house, rent a house? You, have a, you live in a dwelling that has a foundation to it, Okay. You're not in a hut with a dirt floor. Okay, so you have a foundation, if you will, to your place, your apartment, your condo, uh, your house, the house that you're renting, whatever it may be. Maybe it's like a a dollhouse on uh, bricks. I don't know uh, where you live, but you have a foundation to that. And how many of you have ever thought about the foundation of that? Probably very little of you. Uh, more than likely, you opened the door, you walked in, and you thought about the walls, you thought about the paint color, you thought about uh, where decorations can go, you thought about how you can move furniture around, but you probably never really put a lot of thought into the foundation. But it's interesting that a good, healthy, solid house or dwelling place cannot really exist without a solid foundation. In fact, I don't know if you've heard the news story on Northwest Tucson over by a quarry that's there. There's a whole subdivision um, that is basically dropping into a sinkhole as we speak. Uh, In fact, I drove by there yesterday coming back from Phoenix because I just wanted to see it for myself. And you drive down the street, and the street does this. It's like flat, and then there's this. And then it goes flat again. You're kind of like, hey, that's not normal. And then you look around and you realize that people have actually carved out like their whole driveway, taken out, just put gravel down. And you realize you look at the gate and their gate, like that left side of their gate is like three feet lower than the the other side. You look at the side of the house and there's this crack that's going straight up the side of the house. And um, hey, if you're looking, there's there's houses for sale uh, there. And I bet you could get a screaming deal uh, for that. My encouragement to you, though, is uh, to avoid that area. And, and Amy and I were talking like, hey, man, if we, if we had that house, what would we do? We're like, well, we wouldn't live in it. <laughs> we, we'd leave, even if we had to walk away from it. Like just, because there's something about a solid foundation that matters. And when you understand the Gospel of Luke, tonight I want to give you a little bit of background on the Gospel of Luke. You know, there's four accounts in the Bible in the New Testament that talk about Jesus' life, his ministry, his teaching, his life, his death, his resurrection. And you know that it's the gospel accounts of that, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, okay? Now, Luke is an interesting uh, account of that because what we get to see is Luke is not an eyewitness. He, didn't, he wasn't one, he wasn't Mark, he wasn't uh, John. He, he wasn't one of those ones that hung around with Jesus. This is a little bit later in the story, a little bit later in the, the narrative of Jesus. And what you have to understand is Luke is doing an investigation and he's looking back into those, this narrative of Jesus, this Jesus story, if you will. 
and he's interviewing a bunch of people, and he's writing from a Gentile perspective because that's who he is. He's not Jewish descent. He's not Jewish history. And so he's writing back into the story. He's wanting people to understand. In fact, he's kind of been uh, kind of sent out by one particular person, probably who was pretty wealthy, and who wanted to see and write this account and wanted to know if everything that he'd heard, everything that he'd seen, everything that's been told to him, is it true? You know, is this foundational? Is the foundation of this Jesus story solid? Or is it sinking? Is it something that's greater? And the truth is, you want to know that. And that's important. And Luke is a doctor, okay? Any doctors in the room? Doctors, like, they've gotten to a lot of school, right? They had to go through a lot of stuff. And he's very studied. He's very intelligent. He's very much understanding exactly what's going on. And he's at this place where he has to give an account. He's going through interviewing eyewitnesses. He actually is probably a doctor in Trous, where um, Paul gets to eventually, the Apostle Paul, and has kind of linked himself to Paul. Paul's probably the one that led him to put his faith in Jesus, and he spends a lot of time with Paul in the next few years. And this is around probably uh, 60 AD, give or take, uh, when he's writing this account between 60, maybe 63, because the, the book of Acts, he also writes the beginnings of the early church movement. Understand, okay, this church movement that Jesus established, you will be my people, you're going to love this way, you're going to live this way, and you're going to be a witness into the world, and you're going to make a difference. He begins writing the account of Acts and how that begins to unfold in about 64, 65 AD. So this is about between 60, 63. And what we understand is Luke is going to extreme detail in things. In fact, because of his medical background, he actually is the one that we get most of our understanding of how crucifixion actually worked because he understood it from a medical perspective. He understood how this works, how this affects the body. And we begin to see, especially when you look through those things and look through the tail end of the Gospel of Luke, you begin to see great detail of what Luke is describing and what he goes into. And here's what he writes at the very beginning of his entire book. So the very first part of Luke, he's writing, here's why I'm writing this whole narrative, writing this whole account, why I'm going to the extent that I'm going to. Here's what he says. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been filled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too have decided to write an orderly account, an account for you, most excellent Theophilus. And so here's this guy who's probably bankrolling this. Uh, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. That's the point of this entire gospel account. And what we want to see in the next few weeks as we make our way to Easter, in fact, every year we kind of do this, we take one New Testament book that we want to kind of walk through a little bit, and one Old Testament book. Later on in the fall, we want to look through the book of Daniel. I'm excited for us to kind of look through that here in the fall, and excited for us and what our journey the next few weeks might be in this book as we look at Jesus and, like, for example, next week, Jesus and temptation. How do you deal with that? What does it look like? Jesus and love. Okay, what, what did he do with that? How do we begin to understand? I looked at different things that have to, we have to navigate and different opportunities and tensions we have to manage in life and experiences and how do we respond maybe a little bit more the way he did. Now, if you're here and you're not really a follower of Jesus, you're just investigating, then this is a great series for you because you're going to actually get to investigate a little bit about how this guy Jesus lived his life. And you're going to get to hear from a guy, Luke, who's writing this account 
that you may know the certainty of the faith of Christianity. The certainty of the faith that he's saying is foundational. This Jesus story, if you will, has a certainty that you can bank on, that you can actually build your life upon it. And it will not sink, and it will not crack under the pressure. So many people have tried to discount it, tried to, to kind of deframe it and, and break it down and realize, hey, no, no, this is, there's a certainty to this, Luke is saying. In fact, I want to look real quickly at the first couple of chapters. You read through it on your own. But in the first couple of chapters, he's talking about this faith foundation that we can have, the certainty that he understands. And here's the, maybe four quick ones. The certainty of God. You have to understand that the story that Luke's going to tell is a story that God is in the midst of all throughout. In fact, you cannot get around the idea that God is the one who is orchestrating every little piece and every little path of this narrative of this Jesus story. It is saturated with God. He is the main player. He's the main part of the story. He's behind everything that's going on. He's the central figure. This is a God-saturated story, Luke is saying. And you have to understand there is a certainty of God and what he's doing in history, what he's doing to move things behind the scenes, that this is a God-saturated story. In fact, it's interesting to understand that the Gospel of Matthew, about the same length of chapters and words that the Gospel of Luke, Gospel of Matthew has the word God 59 times, but the Gospel of Luke has God 194 times. Luke is trying to say something here. This story is a God story, and you have to understand that God is central to it. There's a certainty of his activity behind the scenes. You have to understand, maybe second, that there's a certainty of Jesus here. There's a certainty of Jesus. He is not just a messenger that was sent. He is the message. It's something all central about him. He is fully God. He is fully man. He is the incarnation representing who God is. He is God is what Luke is saying. This isn't just an actor playing a part. This is the culmination of everything that goes on, and he will reign forever. Luke wants you to understand there's a certainty of Jesus at the center part of this Jesus story, this narrative, this, this experience, this, this historical account of what's unfolding. Maybe third, this, uh, the certainty of salvation. To understand that this Jesus story is about a savior first and foremost. Yes, he's a good teacher. Yes, he's a great humanitarian. But he came first and foremost as a savior because people needed one. That he was the one who would come and he would be the substitutionary sacrifice on behalf of our sins, our brokenness, all of humanity. He would make a way for us to have life with God. He's our savior and all of us needed a savior. We didn't need just self-help Make sense? There's a certainty of a Savior. Tonight, in the town of David, a, a Savior has been born and given to you. Luke wants us to see this. Maybe fourth, there's a certainty of your faith. There's a foundation to your faith, he's saying. Our faith has a foundation in historical reality. These are Real people. This Jesus story is surrounded and populated by real people. This is not a mystical folklore or a made-up legend. There really is a Herod, a Caesar, a real Elizabeth, a real John the Baptist, a real Mary and Joseph, and many more players in this story. 
And ultimately, this is about a real Jesus. And you need to know him. You need to investigate him. You need to understand. You've heard about these folks, Luke would say. You've actually met some of these folks, these writings. And he wants us to understand there's a certainty to our faith. There's a foundation to it. And not only is there a foundation to our faith, there's a foundation here in Luke chapter 3 that I want us to explore a little bit. Because it has to do with our identity. And we live in a culture where um, the reality is, I mean, if you were to pull out a mirror and kind of look at yourself, I mean, maybe your phone turned on a self turn the camera around, take a selfie. Uh, you look at yourself, and, and you know you better than anybody else. Maybe, well, maybe your mom knows you better. But you know you better than anybody else, right? Uh, those of us that are married, uh, you may think you know your spouse, but the truth is they know themselves better. Uh, now, wives, you probably know your husband better than they know uh, themselves. But we know ourselves. We know our brokenness. We know our tendencies toward uh, things that maybe aren't toward our best. We know uh, the tendencies toward good in us. We know the things that drive us, the things that move us. Uh, have you ever had to prove who you are? Have you ever been in a place where you had to prove yourself? Not like, okay, I'm better at basketball than you, and we're going to challenge one another, and then you're going to have this macho moment, and you'll lose, and you're like, oh, darn it. Um, not the idea of proving yourself in that way, but I'm saying proving your identity, who you are. You ever had to do that? You ever bought a car? Have you ever got a passport? Have you ever traveled anywhere? Have you ever been to the DMV? How many? Woo, yeah! Okay. There's therapy moment. Uh, take a deep breath. Relax. You're not there right now. Um, have you ever had to prove yourself? I remember as, uh, as an intern at the church I worked at when I was going through uh, college a little bit, and uh, I remember we were doing this Mexico trip and uh, made sure all the paper, like I was organizing all the paperwork. It was awesome. I got everybody there. We had like 100-plus students going down to Mexico, and we got to the border, and we got to the 21st kilometer, like into Mexico, right? And we had to prove everybody and all that kind of stuff, and, and they went through, and they got going. I went back to the van, and I realized... Um, I didn't have my birth certificate. And, like, that was a problem. Um, even though I had made it into Mexico a little bit, they wouldn't let me go past that portion. And, like, the whole rest of the group was driving away, and I'm there in the van going, well, yeah, like that. Um, so I was bummed. I, I was, like, this idea of trying to figure out, so I had to call mom, call home, and, like, see if they could fax. I don't know if you guys know what fax is, those of you who are young, but they have this thing where you, yeah, anyway, it's like a picture, uh, but different. And so, like, they had to fax the birth certificate down, which I would never try today. That's probably not a good protocol, but back, you know, we, back then, um, that worked. But it took me, like, an hour and a half to prove who I was, and to verify my identity. And I think so many times in our culture, in our life, we spend, we have the ability to verify who we are, but we spend an enormous amount of time trying to validate who we are. It's easy for us to verify. Think about all the, time, all the ways that you can verify yourself. You got pictures on your phone. You got your driver's license. You got your passport. You got dog tags if you're in the military. You got different ways that you can verify who you are. 
But there is a big difference between trying to verify yourself and trying to validate yourself. And I know there's a push in each one of us to try to validate who we are, our worth, our value. To try to validate in a way, but, and some of us take different pursuits of that. Some of us say, well, I'm going to validate my worth by my net worth and what that says about me. Some of us say, I'm going to validate myself by the clothes I can actually buy or the clothes I can actually fit in that maybe you can't, and I'm going to try to validate myself that way. Maybe I'm going to validate myself by the number of titles I have or the initials I have before or after my name, the certifications I have. Maybe I'm going to validate myself by the things I consume or the things that I can have access to or that I can achieve or that I can accomplish. And if you think about it, if you're honest, so many of us spend so much time trying to validate who we are, our self-worth, our value. And we try to understand, okay, how, how am I measured compared to the people around me? How, how do I stack up? How do I understand where my worth comes from? In a lot of ways, we just ultimately we're seeking for this deep kind of soul love, right? And we try a lot of different things to find it. We try a lot of different pursuits, maybe people that you know, that you could sit here and, and even name names of people and the pursuits they've tried and really all they're doing is trying to validate their worth, validate the love that maybe they deserve, to find that, to search for that, to look for it. So much of our existence is spent trying to prove our value, to establish our worth, to say, here's why I'm lovable. Here's why you should love me. So much energy spent toward it. But I want us to drill down a little bit on that because I think that was one of the things that early on in the Gospel of Luke, that in a real quick couple verses, Luke's pointing something out that enabled Jesus to live in such a way that it changed everything. And I think if we can catch a little clue of it, if we can kind of maybe see it from a side angle and, and just listen in a little bit, it might begin to point something out to us in the ways that we try to seek validation. And the truth is, we've already been given it as a follower of Jesus. That what, that's what Luke is writing here. He's saying there's some hope that's here. Jesus has arrived, and here's what he goes on. He talks about John the Baptist, and you have to understand, John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and he's kind of the precursor to Jesus. He's going to point who Jesus uh, is. He's going to bring people. His whole goal is to rally people back toward God in his direction to begin to, to say, hey, I want to have my life realigned and I want to pursue God, not just this religious life, but an honest, authentic relationship with God. That's John the Baptist. And he's calling people to that. He, it's John the Baptist because he's, what, baptizing people. That's why he's John the Baptist. It's, it's pretty quick tie. Um, but that's what he's doing, right? And people are coming out there to the Jordan River. And, and I've been to the Jordan River. It's not really all that impressive. It's cool. Uh, it kind of winds through. It's not very wide. Uh, it's there probably more than likely where we stood a year ago of saying, okay, this is kind of maybe the region where John the Baptist was at. And, and we were there, and, and it's not, it's kind of green, um, but it's not like this perfect clear water or anything. But there's something that's happening in this moment for the lives of people in that region who are saying, I want to aim my life 
back in the direction of God. And here's what Luke records toward the, the middle part of Luke chapter 3 that I want us to see and drill down on a little bit for us tonight. Here's what he writes. When all the people were being baptized, so these are the people who John the Baptist's message is calling them back. They're trying to, in a lot of ways, realign their life to say, you know, God, forgive me for my sins. I've been broken. I need to face toward you and, and move toward you. When all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too, period. Luke's account is real quick, okay? If you read Matthew and you look at Mark's, it's a little bit more explained, a little bit more background going on here. This is where theologians argue a little bit. Okay, why did Jesus need baptized? Because he's perfect, he's without sin. Well, he doesn't need baptized, okay? We're broken, we're the ones who have sin kind of clinging to us. Jesus wasn't, but he did this in a way to show that what John was saying mattered, that it mattered that people were realigning their life and aiming their life back toward Jesus and he steps into this moment, he comes up, he's praying, and look what happens. As he was praying, the heavens opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from heaven, you are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. That's what Luke records. So Jesus gets baptized. He comes up. The heavens are open. There's a voice that comes from heaven. Now, I don't know if you've ever had that happen before. Uh, when I was uh, in high school, we actually stayed with this group we were touring with in a college, and uh, they had the intercom system, which was super cool. So at like 2 in the morning, um, a few friends decided to like go call people in their room, and we'd be like, you know, I, I was there. I was an accomplice. I was just listening. Um, because I don't do bad things. Um, but so my friend it starts calling into some people's rooms, and they're like, Mark, Mark, it's God. Build me an ark. You know, at different things, uh, you know, go get a burger or something like that. Uh, and it's weird when, like, the speaker system is just talking to you out of nowhere. No one else, and people are freaking out a little bit, running into the hallway, like, what is going on? Um, I don't know if it was like that. This crowd gathered round, and all of a sudden, from the heavens is speaking. What's interesting is this is one of the early times that we see the Trinity represented. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all together, which is a, a dominant theme to understand the God of the Bible. That he's not three gods, he's one. He's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, three in one. The Trinity, it's, I know that seems mind-blowing, and that'll have to be a discussion for another time. But this is one of the times where we actually see this expressed. And here's what's happening. As he's praying, the heavens open, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the bodily form like a dove. We don't know if it is a dove. It's just something like it. It lightens on him. And a voice comes from heaven that says, You are my son, and you are loved. And in you I am well pleased. What's fascinating about this part of the story, what seems so easy to read over, is I think this is the foundation of which Jesus marches forward in ministry and does everything else he does because of this moment. Here's why. Jesus is getting ready. We'll look at this next week. Brandon will look at this. Of the idea of, of going into the, the 40 days of tempting. And what does it look like to, to face temptation? 
And how do you respond to that? And, and how does that look like in our world? And, and for someone to understand the complexities and, and the hard part of life, let's just be honest, life is difficult. It's challenging at times. How do you face it? In a culture that searches to try to validate itself, to validate ourselves by doing things, by performing, by accomplishing, by acquiring. Is any of that wrong? No. But if all you do is pursue that in order to find your validation, you will be a person who is running on a treadmill and never stops because you're searching for something you'll never catch up to. But in this moment, Jesus is validating. You are my son, identity, relationship. You are loved. In you, I am well pleased. How much ministry has Jesus done at this moment? Zero. Zero. Identity is not about performance. Identity is about identity. You are my son. You are loved. And in you, I am well pleased. What would it look like as followers of Jesus to begin to try to live more out of that validation that's been given to you in a way that you've been adopted, the Bible says? In, you are now a child, you're a son, you're a daughter of the king. And for you to live out of that identity, because that's what fueled Jesus' ministry. Do you think people had bad opinions about Jesus? Yeah, read the Bible. It's what killed him. Do you think he pleased everybody? Nope, read the Bible. It's what killed him. Do you think a lot of people clamored for him? Do you think fame can go to your head? Yeah, if you live off the fame and the, and the accolades of other people, do you think that can drive you mad? Do you think that can drive you into depression? Do you think that can drive you to doing things outside of your character and outside of the calling you have in life? You bet it does. We see it all the time. Because people are searching for validation. They've already verified who they are. They're just trying to validate who they are by doing this, doing that. What do you fill in the blank? And in this moment, I think God the Father is reminding the Son, your identity rests here in what I say about you. Your identity is secure because I say, I love you. Your identity is secure because I say, I'm with you. I'm pleased by who you are, not what you do. That will flow when you are loved and have a solid identity in who you are. Parents, listen to me. This is one of the greatest blessings you can give your kid is to validate them for who they are, not what they do. That's a side blessing, and you can give rewards for that, and you should. It's awesome. But what you want them to know is that you are my son. You are my daughter. I love you. It's what I say to my kids ever since they've been growing up. If all the four-year-olds were lined up in one big line, the entire world, and I can only pick one, you know who I'd pick? And then I have a long pause. They're like, oh, damn it. 
I pick you every single time. Because I want them to know that's how God feels about them. That's why he sent his son, to give us a certainty for our faith, to give us a certainty of his salvation, to give us a certainty to say, you are worth pursuing, not because you're all good, but because he's all good. And because he loves and he wants to pursue, he wants to, to find us in a way to bring us into our true identity as he rescues us, as he forgives us, as he pulls us to something that we could never get to on our own. For us to live in the security of that identity. I wrote this for the bottom line kind of thing. When God is the one who primarily defines your personal value, he def he's the one that defines your value, then your possessions, your position, your power won't have to. When Jesus is the one who defines who you are, your worth, your value, and you find your value in him, then no matter what possessions or power or positions you have, they won't speak into defining who you are because you've already been defined. You are worth his pursuit. This is what Paul writes in Galatians chapter 4. He writes these words. For when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, to daughtership, that we might be adopted because we are his sons, his daughters. God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, the spirit who calls out Abba, Father, that we get to call God, the creator of the heavens and the universe, Dad, because he's affirming an identity. He's the one that chose us. He goes on. So you are no longer a slave, but God's child. And since you are his child, God has made you also an heir, an heir to everything that's available to you. That you ever thought about the idea that everything that's available to Christ is available to you? Because you're hidden in Christ, is what the Bible says. As a follower of Jesus, if you've come to that place where you've said, I, I surrender, I need a Savior. And you have said, God, I want to be rescued by you. I'm putting all my eggs in the, in the Jesus story basket, and I'm going in, all in on his life and what he did for me. Then you are adopted into being a child of God. That's an amazing thing. I have friends that are adopting a child from overseas. I have other friends that have gone through the adoption process, and I remember being in the park when the judge is there around the bench, and it's a whole ramada, and the whole family's around, and this, this child is, is kind of a ward of the state, right? And in a moment, the judge with that pen signs his name or her name on a piece of paper, and that child's very identity Everything about their future is completely, radically changed in the, in the swipe of a pen to realize that they're no longer a ward of the state. They're now a son, a daughter of this family. They've been adopted into this family, and everything that this family has available is now theirs. It's an amazing thing to witness. And that is what Paul is saying, that what Luke is talking about, that we get to live out of this identity now as a child of the king. What would it look like for you this week? It may seem cheesy, if you will, but what would it look like for you to wake up every morning in the simple challenge to say, 
God, as a follower of you, I've been adopted into your family. Would you help me to live like your son today? Would you help me to live like your daughter today? Would you help me to know that your ear is attentive to my cry? Your alertness is focused in on me. And we can converse at any point. Would you help me to live out of my identity in a world that pushes me to try to find validation in all these other things? Would you help me know that the foundation of my faith and the foundation of my identity is in you as you've rescued me? And so that's what I'd love for you to do this week. Real simple. But maybe it could be life-giving to you to take 30 seconds every morning you wake up and just start your day with, God, I'm your kid. Let's go tackle this day. Would you help me to live as your child today? With all the blessing that that brings, the challenge that that brings, would you just help me to live grounded in that identity today? And to make that a prayer for your week. We're going to continue on in the service and just we're going to take a moment for communion and uh, sing a couple worship songs. And as you sing these songs, I want to encourage you to to let your heart kind of go there a little bit. Not just a song that you're singing to God and a song that you're, you're wanting to bless him. That's a great thing. We want to do that. But I want you to sing as a child of God, as a daughter, as a son who's been rescued, who's had a, a swipe of the pen, if you will. And your whole identity has changed and been changed for the good and forever. And so, Father, I pray as we move toward a time of communion, of worship, that you'd help us to understand the passion that you have for us, that we get to live out of a new identity, not one that we try to form, not one we try to validate by what we achieve or what we accomplish, but simply by the truth that because of faith and faith in Jesus and his life, his death, his resurrection, that we've been adopted into your family and we get to ride your coattails. The benefit of that, as we navigate through this gospel these next few weeks, would you allow us to have our eyes and our heart opened, that we might become better at navigating life the way your son did? Would you help us this week to remember each day we awake that we are your child? We've been adopted into your family. We're an heir to everything that Christ has for us, not because of anything we've done, but simply because we said yes to you. As we take this bread and as we take this cup, would you remind us again that you love us, that you did so, you proved it, you made it so. Would you help us to be people that invite others into experiencing the beauty of having their identity changed forever? We love you.